Hello, and welcome. I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion, and you are listening to Physician Interrupted. This is Episode 7, the concluding episode in our seven-part series on the matrix of clinician distress. The matrix of clinician distress is like an amorphous cloud, and burnout is only one component syndrome within it. When clinicians present with a complaint of exhaustion, feeling disconnected from the work, and feeling a loss of effectiveness or diminished productivity, either in their quality or actual quantity of their work, one always thinks about burnout. After all, these are the hallmark criteria. But burnout has become a catch-all term, and multiple other stress syndromes share similar symptom presentations. Imagine a physician client seeking your guidance because he or she is grappling with these characteristic symptoms of burnout. But in their initial meeting with you, they also share that they recently witnessed a traumatic death of a young patient that really affected them deeply, and they're having nightmares about it. And you learn that they're also having considerable anxiety and sadness due to marital and financial strain. And then they tell you that they've just been named in a wrongful death malpractice suit. You learn almost in passing that they recently lost a dear colleague to COVID. And just as you thought to yourself that things can't possibly get any more stressful, they tell you that their department chair is concerned about them and is ordering them to go to the medical board-affiliated PHP, Physician Health Program, because of their apparent lack of focus and their sour, negative attitude. It would be understandable if you thought this was simply too unrealistic, too much bad stuff happening in such a compressed period of time. But talk with any therapist or coach about the physicians and nurses that they work with as clients, and you'll find that this is not such an unrealistic scenario at all. The problem with burnout, the term is simply overly inclusive. Burnout has unfortunately become a catch-all term for all clinician distress. But as we saw, clinician distress can result from many different areas. In fact, it's many discrete syndromes. And with this over-inclusiveness, remedies for burnout are doomed to fail simply because they're not addressing the multiplicity of components that have erroneously been put into the burnout bucket. In fact, and I recognize this is probably not politically correct, burnout itself may be an inadequate, if not essentially flawed, construct. Burnout is an occupational stress syndrome, which is defined by its manifestations and its affected populations, but not by its causality. That makes it different from other types of stress syndromes that are related to a specific precipitating event or a stressor. For example, with grief, the precipitating event is loss. In the syndrome of post-traumatic stress disorder, the precipitating event is a traumatic event. 
in the event of litigation stress, the stressor is being a defendant in malpractice litigation. But while burnout is broadly defined according to its symptomatic manifestations in three domains, it doesn't point to the stressors causing one's burnout symptoms. As I gave thought to this, I recognized that we're dealing with concurrent stress syndromes, but they're all being grouped together under the broad heading of burnout. In the scenario above, we see elements of PTSD, personal life stress, litigation stress, grief, and stress from the medical regulatory system complex itself. In our Matrix of Clinician Distress series, we've explored a wide range of syndromes that constitute what I am newly referring to as the matrix of clinician distress. We've covered burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury in part two, grief, acute traumatic stress, and PTSD in part three, the clinical mood disorders revolving around the primary emotions of sadness and anxiety in part four, malpractice litigation stress, and medical regulatory system duress, part five, and stress from discrimination and the bully culture of medicine, part six. It's been a lot to take in, I'm sure. As one non-medical friend of mine summed it up after finishing just part one, God, jeesh, that's weighty stuff, Kernan. I hated to break the news that she really perhaps ought to dose up on Prozac before wading into part two through six. But what but the most somber reader wants to hear that? But there's no other way to convey this. That's the reality of what's going on. There's no soft sell on this. No tweet, no one-paragraph post, no cute don't-worry-be-happy jingle is going to be able to put a happy face on this intensifying matrix of distress. And mislabeling it as burnout is not going to help. The sooner we see it and realize its immensity and its ramifications, the more capable we'll be to systematically address it. But first, we've got to see it, name it, and acknowledge its immensity. Now, it's a messy matrix. As you've seen, these syndromes individually are each of major consequence, and they're not mutually exclusive. They not only can, but do co-occur. Often, a clinician may be grappling with multiple concurrent stress syndromes, and they're often interrelated in a causal chain, like a serially exploding fireworks display. In fact, there's quite a commonality of symptoms amongst the syndromes, and that can make them very difficult to tease apart, especially if one hasn't listened carefully to the clinician's narrative containing references to the various stressors. A clinician's complex presentation is really customary. It's a melange of symptoms manifesting concurrent syndromes. And addressing one syndrome without addressing or at least naming the others not only leaves the distressed clinician feeling that their situation has been incompletely identified, as a result, their overall distress is not able to be resolved satisfactorily.
And the longer that one's distress is not sufficiently relieved, the more intense it may become. Distress is like an avalanche that gains speed and size as it continues. It eventually overwhelms. This notion of complex illnesses is nothing new in medicine. Multi-syndromes are common. When someone comes into the emergency room after a major accident, they almost always have multiple things going on. They may have a head injury and a hemorrhaging stab wound, and they may be in respiratory or cardiac distress. There is no one simple intervention that fixes all of these. The sum total is a person with multiple trauma critically affecting multiple organ systems. Not addressing all of these delays stabilization and may doom the entire effort to failure. The distress matrix is remarkably similar to the concept of multiple trauma. The only way you can work with it is to address its multiple components. Just as the term multiple trauma is not per se a diagnosis, and it's simply a term of art telling you that the patient's presentation is going to be compound and complex by nature and that you need to be prepared, so too the clinician distress matrix. In consulting, it's often said that for every complex problem, there is always one simple solution, and it's nearly invariably wrong. The lure of simplicity is a great one. Now, occasionally, but most often for relatively straightforward issues, one tweak can do the trick. However, the risk of employing simple approaches to complex problems is not just that the approach didn't work. It's that the recipient of the interventions, the patient, the group, becomes weary and wary while their distress and their distrust increase. Therefore, it's crucial that the therapist, coach, counselor, the organizational leader have a full understanding of these various syndromes and how to tease them apart and help provide effective relief, recognizing that sufficient space and time needs to be afforded to accomplish this. As we saw from the opening scenario above, the reality is that the clarity of these issues in the actual client encounter is often not that straightforward. Those of us who do this work, therapists, coaches, counselors, know the complex presentation of most people and how difficult it can be to make sense of what's going on. And be assured, if it's difficult for us as professionals who specialize in this work day in and day out, imagine what it is for the clinician client who's experiencing such distress. They can't be expected to figure it out because it's not in their knowledge domain. And besides, their headspace is so jammed with distress that they just don't have the mental RAM space to disentangle it. That's why they're seeking our help. Now, one might wonder, why do anything? You can imagine a leader saying, why should your problem be my problem? It's as if to say, you're a grown-up. You ought to be able to handle this. Look, everybody else is. Of course, 
There are numerous flaws in this, not the least of which is that everybody else is doing fine. They aren't. But presuming that's the gist of the organizational leader's sentiments, there are abundant reasons why any organization employing clinicians ought to aggressively address clinician distress. If any group of people you lead are experiencing distress, your task is to recognize that on your radar and promptly strive to identify and explore the distress and do something about it. Why? Not simply because distress is a form of pain and causes an undesirable quality of life for the clinician, but because it is affecting the well-being and performance of your people. That group of people is not, or soon will not be, performing as you need them to perform and as they were intended to, and really indeed want to perform. Apart from the frequently cited cost of recruiting and retaining a clinician, and they are indeed considerable, let me add a less utilitarian and more humanistic, clinician-centric perspective. In the case of physicians, they may have sunk a quarter million dollars into their medical school education. Given that they had to prepare to enter med school, they had four years of college pursuing the arduous pre-medical track, which probably cost another $100,000. After getting their MD or DO degree, as part of their necessary apprenticeship in the knowledge and skills of clinical medicine, they endured four or more postgraduate years of apprenticeship training in their desired specialty, a program of work and study that more resembles an indentured servitude in exchange for learning. The lost income from those years is considerable. But more importantly, here we have a physician who has effortfully acquired a wealth of specialized knowledge and skill and has entered into a specialty altruistically wanting to help humanity by using those talents to treat human illness. And now, because of a multiplicity of forces, she or he is hobbled by distress and can't effectively do the work they set out to do. In effect, they are disabled, not able to perform their work in the way that they and their healthcare organizations and patients want them to perform. Considering here their subjective experience, their own severely diminished quality of life and thwarted professional fulfillment, and they are indeed feeling miserable, we've got to recognize that these fine people are experiencing extraordinary psychological distress. But I fear too many of us watch passively, perhaps indifferently, while an increasing number of clinicians are truly suffering. I suspect our lackadaisical approach to this is the equivalent of indifference to their plight. However, I can only believe that that indifference is based in unawareness. We've got to recognize that we are squandering these rare resources. Many don't realize that the pipeline to produce such clinicians is very limited and costly. 
And yet, the need for specialized healthcare resources is only going to increase with longer life expectancy, even more so because of the complex medical problems inherent in an aging population. The healthcare system, leaders and clinicians, and coaches and therapists all need to develop a solid and shared understanding and approach to remedying clinician distress and fostering their, as well as overall, organizational well-being. If we don't do this, the distress will continue and it will be intensified because of this current pandemic. And it will increase simply by its very nature. That's the nature of unresolved illness. And in not addressing it effectively, we will have increased attrition passively. Inevitably, and likely sooner than later, we will have a full-blown healthcare personnel crisis. We will be losing, if not already hemorrhaging, deeply good, genuinely caring people who are highly intelligent and well-trained and highly devoted to patient care, the very people you want in the roles they are serving. And incidentally, they too want to continue to serve in these roles. After all, that's why they devoted the extraordinary time and effort to undertake their profession in the first place. They are a rare and treasured resource. They are not simply expendable provider units or vendors who can be replaced like blown fuses. If we, healthcare leaders, therapists, coaches, do come together to address this, we have the opportunity to restore and strengthen a healthy culture of medicine that not only fosters clinician well-being, but also creates a thriving workplace culture, one which itself beneficially impacts the quality of one's work in terms of patient outcomes as well as overall staff excellence. So here are some key takeaways. What can we do? First, stop normalizing burnout and distress as a way of life to be expected in this profession. Considering the bully culture of medicine, evidence suggests that we've become so used to living in distress, we've normalized it as part of the physician's identity. Second, knowledge and awareness of this distress matrix are key. We need to acknowledge the reality and magnitude of clinicians' distress and its complexity. Clinicians who are grappling with these multi-layer syndromes are not just burned out. They are in distress. They're suffering. And unrelieved suffering devours our psychic reserve. It's vital that the helper, be they a mentor, a coach, a therapist, a counselor, have a full awareness of these various syndromes so that they know what they need to be listening for. As in any syndrome, you have to further dig based upon what your suspicion is. But before you dig, you have to have the suspicion and you have to have an understanding of what you're digging for. Healthcare organizations and the entire healthcare system, the entire field of medicine needs to comprehend this complex matrix, which itself, preliminary as it is, may still not capture the full picture of clinician distress. But without understanding this complex matrix, one can only expect to have continued distress and fallout from that.
Number three, stop framing distress as a deficiency of coping. Stop labeling distress as insufficient coping. It's actually coping resource depletion. If you look at a population of people in any group, in any system, if you have only one or two people who are having distress and everyone else is going along hunky-dory, then you're dealing with a rare outlier of an otherwise healthy functioning organization. Whatever the cause, that person or persons does need help in finding resources to resolve their very real distress. However, as you begin to see more and more people within your workplace population who are experiencing distress of various sorts, you need to recognize that these are not outliers. Just as though it were an environmentally caused illness like contaminated water, your task is to determine what's causing it and remedy it. Number four, stop pathologizing distress itself. We need to stop pathologizing distress. Distress is not an illness, though it can lead to illness. It is the composite degree of stress that devours all coping and overcomes all resilience. That's what is pathological. Stress ultimately wears down your reserves, and you start to develop symptoms as a result of those diminished reserves. And those symptoms can have significant disabling impacts on your work life, social life, and personal and intrapsychic life, your mental life. But distress is itself a form of emotional intelligence. It's just like the pain of a sprained ankle. The pain is there not simply as a byproduct, not simply as an annoyance. It is telling us that something is awry. It's sending a signal that something needs to be done to repair the injury and the swelling, and that meanwhile, the ankle is not to be used in the customary way. Pain is very protective, and it's conveying critically important intelligence. By preventing us from operating in our customary healthy manner, distress is informing us that one or more things are seriously out of kilter. Number five, recognize that complex things like multi-syndrome distress take time to sort out. That's the nature of complexity. And we need to afford them and us that time. As therapists and coaches, we need to approach this like complex trauma, just as in the emergency room I just mentioned. We need to develop a comfort with both complexity and uncertainty. If we're treating the individual client, and I use treating in a very general way, we need to have in mind the array of concurrent syndromes that may be occurring. Likewise, if we are a leader or a change agent in a healthcare organization, we do need to understand that there are an array of things that may be going on concurrently, and we need to approach this like a complex multi-trauma illness. And just as in the ER, our task is to rapidly understand what's going on and to determine what can we best do to help. As importantly, 
Once we understand this and help the client articulate and then name these various component syndromes in their own distress matrix, our task is to help the client prioritize their approach and speed their process of recovery. Number six, provide abundant support and guidance in deepening emotional intelligence and developing self-mastery. Both as a psychiatrist and as a physician coach, and as well as from my own distress matrix, I found that one of the biggest things that devours your psychological reserves and immobilizes you is not the stress syndrome itself, nor the challenge of having multiple stress syndromes and their associated stressors concurrently. It's the hopelessness and relentless whittling down one's reserves to depletion that leads to despondency. Validating the immensity of their distress, we must help them in understanding themselves, deepening their emotional intelligence, and mastering psychological self-management. Our approach needs to be one of positivity and not pathology. We need to help articulate that the stressors that they are up against are inordinate and that their difficulty in coping is not a personal deficiency state. In essence, our core task is to help them navigate these most tumultuous seas so that they can master their craft, that is, themselves, and successfully navigate their way through these seemingly overwhelming circumstances. Number seven, especially for coaches, therapists, and counselors, therapists and coaches have different expertise, different perspectives, and different approaches to work and life challenges. While generic approaches to stress management, such as meditation, mindfulness, yoga, etc., are perfectly fine in their own right, they don't substitute for in-depth reflective work and systematically processing each component of one's distress matrix. Because coaches and therapists take markedly different approaches to help clients, they may feel that their expertise is limited in addressing some of these discrete syndromes. So they may tend to take a limited approach or perhaps simply not even address the components they're not comfortable dealing with. And that's ultimately a disservice to the client. It's likely that neither field of study is fully capable of addressing each of these syndromes in the ways that need to be done. Generally speaking, coaches lack a sufficient understanding of the psychological components of illness. Taking the all-too-common coaching path of simply helping them sidestep all of this and look at a new career or a new job setting is not going to address the complex of underlying distress. Sure, taking a soldier out of battle and putting them at a desk job away from the front does lessen the chance of further combat injury. But it doesn't do anything to address the existing injuries, PTSD, and grief, nor does it change the systemic problems that are causing it. Conversely, 
Therapists tend to delve more deeply into symptoms and psychodynamics and feelings and too often lack a pragmatic approach toward ensuring that the client moves forward and out of the morass. And especially those therapists with a prescriber's degree, such as an MD or DO, or a prescribing mid-level, may be inclined to resort to putting everything into a clinical syndrome diagnostic bucket, such as depression or anxiety or some variant of these, and then prescribing medication for that newly diagnosed syndrome. While that medication may or may not help with some of the symptoms, if a clinical syndrome is in fact present, it's unlikely to address these other syndromes that are presenting, such as grief and PTSD and others. It's really important to get training in these syndromes and coming together around a shared understanding of this distress matrix and broadening your professional scope can help eliminate the inherent limitations of these diversely talented helpers. Also, make yourself known as a referral resource. Reach out to healthcare organizations who employ these physicians and other clinicians and offer your services. Make yourself known that clinician distress is what you specialize in and that you offer your services with utmost confidentiality and respect for the clinician. And connect with other coaches and therapists and organizational leaders who are doing this work. And now, especially for healthcare organizational leaders, recognize that the distress matrix is greater than burnout alone. Get out of the mindset that your problem is not my problem because, for one, it's smug indifference doesn't help. And two, your workforce's distress is your problem. Recognize that there is an urgency to act do get knowledgeable guidance on how best as an organizational leader to approach remedying this matrix of clinician distress. Research and refer to coaches and therapists who have expertise in these matters and who promise strictest confidentiality and protection of their client. Actively create or co-create or otherwise host and enable programs for clinician recovery and wellness. Continuously show concern and understanding. In other words, walk the talk. And lastly, for clinicians experiencing distress from any one or more of these syndromes, get help safely. Seek out safe therapist and coaching referrals from knowledgeable others. Deepen your own emotional intelligence. And in the article, I have linked to a video I did offering an overview of one approach to emotional intelligence. Get active in changing some aspect of the healthcare system that you believe is fueling clinician distress and preventing clinicians from getting the help they need. While getting help yourself, try to turn your ordeal into a life lesson in self-mastery. This is pivotal in getting out of the harmful victim mode 
no matter how valid that assessment of victimization is. Strive to connect with others who are also grappling with burnout and distress. And at all costs, maintain hope and vision and persevere. The world needs your talents and compassion. And let me elaborate a little on that. Hold on to faith that you can and will find a way to navigate this awful system. Tell yourself that at no point is suicide an option. Let me repeat that again. Tell yourself that at no point is suicide an option. Recognize that a system that stresses people to the max and doesn't allow them to get the care they need is a screwed up system. Clinical health care is not the only option. If this system is so screwed up and causing you so much pain and it doesn't seem workable, recognize it's the system that's not workable, not you. You can't fix it yourself. It may be time to move on, despite all the money and effort you put into it. And be assured, there is a growing community of physicians who have done so successfully. It seems terribly unfortunate that it must come to that. But the system itself may need to feel the pain before it acts. In closing, enlarging our frame from burnout to that of a matrix of clinician distress may at first glance seem more daunting than the current approach to equating all of clinician distress with burnout. Rather, I believe it simplifies it. It makes the challenge more manageable. If you can develop safe pathways for coaching or therapist assistance and appropriately treat and counsel the component stress syndromes, this would make that, which is termed burnout, so much more remediable. I hope it's clear now that if you're dealing with baseline burnout, but it's not full-blown yet, and rather only in what I term the wear-down stage, and you're experiencing grief, and PTSD, and depression, and administrative regulatory system dread, and malpractice litigation stress, the customary burnout antidotes, marginally effective as they are already, are not going to improve the distress picture erroneously labeled as burnout. With no slight intended to wellness practitioners, you can take deep breaths until you're giddy and meditate until the cows come home, but these diverse syndromes are not going to magically evaporate. I hope the challenge of understanding clinician distress as a matrix and how it relates to the epidemic of burnout is clearer than it had been previously. Is the pathway forward clear? No, but I hope this exploration has helped chart the territory to make it more so. The recently deceased writer, E.L. Doctorow, noted that headlights on cars can only project light about 100 feet in front of them, but you can still travel in the darkest night across the whole country that way, and that's what we're having to do. So in closing, let me again share with you that I write this not from a lofty, removed theoretical stance. I know every one of these syndromes, not just from their theoretical perspective, 
I've experienced most of them, some of them quite intensively. I know their complexity. I know what it is to try to navigate through them. I know for me how crucial it was to strive to tease them apart, almost asking obsessively, what is this that I'm experiencing? I've traveled the territory of weighty distress. I've gotten quite familiar with the inner landscape of fear, hurt, anger, sadness, and shame, the five biggies which comprise the group of emotions I term the turmoil emotions. I've also learned that you can't run from them. They're each trying to tell you something. That's why they're emotions. They're moving you to a deeper understanding. I love being a physician and its entire arena of study and healing. I'm humbled to be a member of this deeply honorable profession. And it worries me greatly that a coalescence of forces from many directions is bearing down so immensely on our field of work, our calling, burdening, if not crippling, so many devoted clinicians and driving them out of their chosen profession. And that's why I've taken this opportunity to more deeply explore this matrix, a reflection originating simply from a journalist's straightforward inquiry about compassion fatigue amongst clinicians in this COVID pandemic and how it's related to burnout and moral injury. Yes, perhaps it's been in greater detail than most clinicians may need, but the detail has been provided especially for the benefit of those who are caught in this matrix of distress as well as for those therapists, coaches, counselors, and organizational leaders who seek to help them most effectively. Sometimes it seems as though the entire field of medicine is currently in the distress ICU, and effective remedy is stubbornly elusive. I believe a key element of that has been our limited scope of understanding of the matrix of clinician distress as something larger than simply burnout. We've seen complex challenges before, and we've made our way through them. And I'm convinced that the present challenge is no different. Thoughtfully understanding its complexity and finally recognizing the necessity for substantial change we will be able to address these challenges and craft a sustainable healthcare system for all. But that sustainability must be especially mindful to take care of the extraordinarily talented and dedicated clinicians who provide that care. I so want us to be able to identify and fix what's ailing us as a profession so that we can do the work of healing without it making us ill and miserable and forcing us to leave the profession out of insoluble distress so that we can do the work of healing that we love and are good at, that we've been called to do, and that people so desperately need. If I can be of assistance in your efforts at developing effective approaches to clinician distress, please do let me know. Your comments on this piece or the entire series will be most welcome, as will be your sharing these articles and podcasts. And that concludes our series on the matrix of clinician distress. Thanks so much for listening.
Till next time, I'm Kernan Mannion for Physician Interrupted. To our clinicians, thanks for all you do. May your healing spirit continue to shine. Till next time, take care and stay well. Thank you.